This week on a lively experiment, shenanigans with one candidate's signatures in the first congressional district race now has the attention of Rhode Island's attorney general. And we sit down with the lead sponsor of an historic shoreline access bill that is already having a significant effect on beachgoers. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Tim White, lead reporter for the WPRI Target 12 investigative team. Boston Globe reporter Steph Machado and Bill Bartholomew, founder of the Bartholomew Town podcast. Hello and welcome to A Lively Experiment. I'm Jim Hummel. We expected this week's headline to be who made the ballot for the first congressional district race in the fall, but a growing scandal is threatening to overtake the campaign of one of the front runners, Sabina Matos. After an increasing number of the 500 signatures she needs to get on the ballot have been called into question. And now police and the attorney general are involved. Tim, let me begin with you. have been leading a lot of the reporting on this this week. A lot of people are asking, how serious is this? Well, I think you answer that question in two ways. Uh, you raise the police and attorney general investigation and then the scrutinizing of the at least 500 signatures you need certified to get on the ballot. Now, at last check, uh, Sabina Matos had 728 certified signatures. How many uh, signatures are going to fall under scrutiny? There's that that question there as well. But the I think other big question to ask about how serious is it is the political question. We have 13 Democrats that have made the ballot. She, as you point out, is the perceived frontrunner, uh, Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos. So what is going to be the political fallout for her? For a lot of people, this race has not been on the radar screen, and what thrust it into the public sphere is a scandal mm. uh, over signatures, and it's swirling around her campaign. So will she withstand the political scrutiny? And we can certainly stop talking about how boring the race has been yes. and how slow it's Thankfully. been um, all summer because now it's heating up with this scandal. And I think what we is yet to be seen is whether the other candidates capitalize on this bad week for Sabina well, Matos. Are, don't you? And yes, but you know, they need to do something to make themselves the front runner, right? Mm -hmm. Not just they're obviously all they're all talking about and criticizing her, but who's gonna do something to sort of potentially overtake her or thrust themselves into the top tier and get more people thinking about them. Um, we'll see if we see more union endorsements coming out, maybe for other candidates and things like that. So that's, I think, the campaign is finally sort of off to the races now. It's a perfect for television because it's got alliterative signature scandal. Oh, yeah. Do we have that? <laughs> yeah, we Sometimes love it. Philly fiasco, <laughs> signature scandal. Yeah, and I, then there's also now people who are calling into question the notion that mail ballots are valid and that there's election fraud that takes place and this is just proof of a larger problem in Rhode Island where our election integrity is in question and so it's just a broadly unfortunate situation particularly for the lieutenant governor now who is let, look let's be honest about it this is problematic at, at both levels and whoever is able to assert themselves and gain some name recognition to the you know Maddie Matunix out there uh, that barely pay attention to this stuff, um, 
that's who is probably going to become your new front runner. She has not been the most transparent in her races. She ducked some of the debates last year. I'm surprised that the campaign hasn't gotten out. We've gotten kind of a we're kind of concerned about this, but she hasn't held a press conference. She hasn't answered any questions. Does that surprise you or not? Well, based on what you point out, how they handled communications before, I wouldn't say it, it surprises me. And we, and we should say we're recording this on a Thursday morning, so that may change. The mm. lieutenant governor might come out and decide to give an interview, hold a press conference, something like that. So far, the way they've wanted to handle communications is by uh, issuing press releases. I will just say, having doing this for a long time, having done this for a long time, uh, the public doesn't like that. They want to hear from the, uh, in this case, an elected official, uh, themselves, but a politician to answer questions, to sit down with someone or uh, hold that press conference. I have requested an interview with the lieutenant governor multiple times throughout this entire ordeal, and so far they have just leaned into written statements, and that doesn't fly always. And I think it would be um, not an advisable move for her to let this go into a second week without it extends talking cycle, right? right exactly it extends and certainly the story's not going to go away because there are now criminal investigations mm -hmm. going on but she should probably get in front of some cameras soon and talk about it um, and then I wanted to address something that Bill said when we talk about fraud and all these concerns I have heard from some folks saying you know this is an example of how the system works because these signatures were not going did not pass muster were not going to pass muster multiple towns noticed that these signatures were not valid signatures of registered voters. So it's highly concerning, but at the same time um, shows that they're not, these papers are not just getting rubber stamped. Well, I also think that's going to play out. Now, Tim, if you haven't seen Tim's stuff, go and look at it online. It's, you know, it's shoe leather reporting. It's what we've all done. To You're down in Newport. You're checking. You're talking to people, whatever. Bill, you also got some, some and started looking at the signatures. It's the same thing that a lot of reporters are going to be doing. Now, some, if some of the ones, there's a woman, if you haven't been paying close attention, there's a one woman who's been gathering signatures that has been in question. If the signatures beyond what she gathered begin to get in question, then it's going to answer that question of, is that a problem? And tell me some of what you saw when you were looking at the signatures. Right. I did a little data journalism yesterday and started populating maps where the signatures in question were coming into play. And then you could sort of see that in many instances, in Newport, for example, they were clustered in one area. So you start looking at some of the validated signatures in that same area. And look, I'm not a handwriting expert, nor is my colleague at WPRO, Dan York, but as we started to go through them, it became clear that even more of these signatures may be subject to additional scrutiny and may actually be proven to be, if not fraudulent, highly suspect. You know, at, Steph said uh, the towns were doing their job. I would say a town did. Jamestown was the first to find that there were some questions with these signatures. And I think it's fair to ask when looking at you know, the system itself. Did Jamestown reach out to other communities and say, hey, if this Holly McLaren, she, we have questions about her, you should check that out. Uh, they're not required to do that. That might be something that uh, lawmakers look at. And I would also say, when we went down to Newport, uh, looking at one of the sheets, I, I saw uh, the name of an individual with a signature, and then 25 spaces down, I saw the same name of that individual with a different signature. But yet, many of the signatures on that, including one of those names uh, that was duplicated, they were accepted. I think, uh, you know, journalistically, we look at that and go, okay, this entire sheet is suspect, and we're going to start calling every one of these names. Local election officials who are certainly overworked, 
need to do that again is if there's a red flag on that sheet, two, the same name as twice with two different signatures, that entire sheet should be scrutinized. So what happens with the, so Don Carlson filed, probably others would Democratic have. Democratic candidate. A Democratic candidate filed an appeal, which he had to do by uh, yesterday, Wednesday at four o'clock. What, now, what shape does that take on the appeal? I don't think we've seen this in recent memory. Do they start going and looking at every signature now? I mean, what does that, what does that entail? Is it Board of Elections? Is it Secretary of State? Is it's it Board local? Of can't? Okay. So, so, the, so what do they do? It, it, and it's a challenge that is filed to the Secretary of State's office, and then the Secretary of State just takes that challenge, hands it over to the Board of Elections. We'll find out Friday at 2 o'clock. Again, a lot of people will be watching the show by then, but the Board of Elections is meeting at 2 o'clock. This is on their agenda, and we'll find out how they approach it. And I think what's interesting about this whole thing is, like, I don't know that the public even knows about this entire process yeah, of point. signature collection. I mean, they hear about it on the news vaguely as in, okay, 13 <laughs> people have qualified for the ballot. But this year, we're now talking so much about the process of the signature collection and what it is. And I think that will increase the scrutiny around it and questions around it. As Tim said, this, is re this isn't a, a Secretary of State process, really. It's 39 individual cities and towns process, validating individual signatures by their board of canvassers and should there be more communication or something more centralized could be a question. Yeah, yeah and I think that to your point, I, I remember following around some gubernatorial candidates as they collected signatures <laughs> at the Cape Verdean Festival or the Stop and Shop here, there and everywhere. And you just see this analog, seemingly outdated process, right? And you start to wonder with technology, with iPads, with scannable licenses, real ID, are we going to get to a point where there's a different way to either go about this process or just abandon it altogether and find a new way to test the validity or the will of a candidate to get on the ballot? Steph, what about the second headline that I said, we thought this week it was going to be, okay, who's made the ballot? And where's it going to go from here? Now, this throws the dynamic. Who knows what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks? But let's talk about the race, the larger race. Who's mm -hmm. on the ballot now and who you see and what they have to do? We have just a little over six weeks left until the primary. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I feel like a broken record, but we still have a number of candidates who don't have great name recognition, right? And that's why Sabina Matos was the front runner in part because she is the only statewide office holder in the race and people know who she is. And so this is the time that the candidates, if if they're not on TV, probably need to be getting on TV with commercials, need to be doing press conferences, need to be getting themselves out there in more of a way than just knocking on doors and going to little meet and greets. People need, especially the ones who don't already enjoy widespread name recognition. And so we already saw Nick Audiello drop out of the race this week because his internal polling showed he was at 5%. He didn't have as much money as everyone else to compete in that way. So we have to see how these other six or seven candidates who are um, in that sort of middle tier can get themselves up near the top. What about Marvin Abney? That surprise you? I mean, it seemed like his heart really wasn't in it. Uh, finance chairman who announced but had kind of a low-key campaign, he didn't make the 500 signatures, which right. is stunning to me. And now some questions about a loan that came from his campaign. Look, um, I think it, it's, it's a very difficult thing for somebody who was House finance chair to simultaneously run a campaign, and that was always the question was, boy, is he at a disadvantage because theoretically he's going to have to wait until – the General Assembly session is done to really dig into this because he's going to be so involved in the, 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 the budgetary process. You can make the same argument for Sabina Matos or any other elected official, but 
that was always there. And you're right, it just didn't seem like he had the momentum in that early phase that others certainly did. And you, you say, you know, we're just six weeks away or whatever it is from the primary. A little uh, more than six, yeah. Uh, think about this. Uh, I believe early voting starts August 16th, yep. mm. right? I mean, so less people are weeks away. less than a month. So yeah. people are going to be casting ballots even sooner than that. And so far, this race, to me, uh, because as Steph pointed out, name recognition and all those challenges has been a race about endorsements. And a lot of that is because there's only so much money sl uh, sloshing around in CD1 right now. And there are 13 now Democrats on the ballot and two Republicans. Uh, they're all drink pulling from the same pot of money. Uh, these endorsements in this race, to me, have an outsized influence because some endorsements are greater than others. Mm -hmm. It's great to get a state rep endorsement, whatever, but if you get a union endorsement, as Sabina Matos has uh, for some of the unions, or say Emily's List, or something like that, where there might be that third-party spending and also that ground And to game. get them yes, to the polls. The to, that's right, the and get people. people out, literally get them in the van, get them to the polls, all of Especially that. Especially if you could win with ten to 15,000 votes. Yes. Do you think some of the people in the unions are like, man, I... We should have waited a week on that endorsement, right? Well, that's a right? good point. The endorsements came out prior to this entire uh, signature scandal, and that does, that's the other headache that could, I stress could, um, be on the horizon for the Matos campaign. How does that affect future endorsements? How does that affect fundraising? What about, uh, so Gabe Amo is uh, dropping uh, TV pretty soon. Don Carlson's got the most money. You know, when are we going to see him come up? Sandra Cano and I think Aaron Regenberg. So that's kind of like the top tier. What do you see from them over the in the coming weeks? I think they're all going to be out there, out in front. But another name that keeps coming up, and this comes from someone that we all know who's sort of a political insider in Providence, is uh, Anna Cazada. And there's a chance with this race having such a low n threshold in terms of the numbers you actually have to get to that I'm not going to say it's anybody's race, right? But if you build the right coalition and you get the right grassroots level of door knocking, especially in Providence, kind of anything is possible. And it would be less shocking for an upset to take place in this race than in most other congressional races. Senator Quesada said something to me the day that she announced her campaign. She says, I'm not going to have the most money, but I will have the most volunteers. So we'll see if that turns out to be true. But it, it is a political reality that you need money to run a campaign for Congress. And something that I'm watching, because I specifically cover Providence, is I think we have six candidates left who live in Providence. Mm. And only half of Providence is in CD1. Mm. And some of of the candidates don't live in CD1, but um, that's a big pie to try to split apart. And so Ana Quesada does have a big base in Providence, but whether she has enough that she'd be able to get enough votes to win when there's five other people who live in Providence and also have a base, I think is going to be difficult. Final point, I find it ironic that you don't have to live in CD2 to run. CD1. Uh, CD, CD1, CD2. Right. I'm you can live in CD2. CD2. Right. You don't <laughs> have to Sabina live Mato's in the does. district, but you do to sign. Yeah, so... Uh, and so that's going to be interesting right. on signatures, too, right? Yeah, I mean, Sabina Matos can't sign her own nomination papers because she lives in CD2. Just, what, what is it? Wouldn't it be funny if she needed that away? one signature yeah, I mean, to get Oliveville. over the hump and she didn't exactly. have her own? I, most of Providence is probably a mile away from CD1. I mean, it's <laughs> not a... That's a good point. Yeah, she lives in Olneyville. Yeah. Okay. One of the signature fully intended. Uh, signature pieces of legislation in the General Assembly was shoreline access. We've been talking about it for years. This is the Ocean State. I had a chance to sit down with Representative Terry Cortfriend. She was the lead sponsor in the House. To talk about the impact, there was also a legal challenge, probably not surprising, from the property owners. Here's a little bit of what she had to tell me. It's what makes Rhode Island 
the ocean state, more than 400 miles of coastline that in some places has been inaccessible for many until now. Initially, it was going to just be decriminalized walking on the shore. Representative Terry Cortford headed up a 12-member legislative commission that studied the issue of shoreline access. Their recommendations eventually resulted in a law passed last month that allows the public access 10 feet inland from the seaweed line. For decades, the line of demarcation was confusing for nearly everyone. Days, it was underwater almost the whole day. So how could Rhode Islanders have this constitutional right but be using a line that nobody can see, nobody knows where it is, it moves, it's a dynamic shore. Cordford said she is not surprised by a legal challenge from some property owners, adding the law is clear that the public cannot go up onto their land in places that have well-defined boundaries like a seawall. And she's confident the law will hold up under legal scrutiny. They bought along the shore and clearly the Constitution in Rhode Island is very clear about um, our right to Rhode Islanders right to the shore. And most of those property owners will say, oh, we don't have a problem with uh, some a fisherman fishing or we don't have a problem if somebody wants to walk across the shore. Where it starts to get dicey is if somebody wants to put down their chair or wants to put down a towel. But you are allowed to swim from the shore, so I think the courts do need to interpret our Constitution. So while a lawsuit has been filed, at this point, no injunction has been filed against it. And so right now, the law stands, and we've seen it been uh, put to the test. You talked a lot about this on talk radio last week, and you had the attorney general on. Had the attorney general as well as the attorney for this Coastal Taxpayers Association that are essentially the plaintiff in this litigation challenging the law. Look, this is something that's been you know, on a lot of our radars on and off for years, I mean, even as just a a kid growing up in South County, this was always a thing that was relevant. And now we just have a very simple, cleared, clearly defined, easy to understand line of demarcation as to what is public and what is private. It should withstand legal scrutiny, but the attorney for this, this Coastal Taxpayers Association, I asked, do you think this could go to the Supreme Court? And he was like, oh yeah, this could totally be a SCOTUS matter. The next step will be, of course, uh, the the... Uh, perpendicular access point, which is the different, the fire districts. I mean, I've seen people set up sawhorses blocking <laughs> roads in Newport. I mean, it's that is another sort of battlefield. And it'll be interesting to see what we learn this year and how that applies to next year's efforts on the perpendicular side. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because I haven't covered this um, specific statute. My colleague Brian Amaral is the one who, who covers it for the globe. But sure, you can go on the beach 10 feet above the seaweed line, but how do you get to that spot without yeah. crossing private yeah. property. They have to build public access ways or else, I mean, I guess you could swim to the beach, you could boat to the beach. Well, and that's been the problem. Yeah, parachute public, in, yeah. public access a lot of times has been blocked in places that are designated and private owners will put up signs that, you know, clearly are illegal, but they're very intimidating and sometimes they have guards there. You do see, uh, you know, pillars that say public right of way and right. you can access different areas. The lawmaker you 
talked to said, you know, the, the Constitution in Rhode Island is clear. Well, there's another Constitution that's pretty clear on this matter, and that's a U.S. Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, which says, you know, the government can't take away your land without, quote, just compensation. So I think that is going to be the argument that the plaintiffs make in this case that are challenging the state law that, uh, you know, look, we bought this property for X and now you've moved the goalpost uh, and it is Y and that violates my U.S. constitutional rights which by the way does supersede uh, all state constitutions so it'll be interesting to see uh, how the judges fall in this matter but I will just say from a I haven't covered it either like Steph but I'm interested in reading about it I wonder if there's not going to be a lot of sympathy for the plaintiffs mm -hmm. in, in this right. one like Okay, sorry that you lost 10 feet of beachfront property, um, you know, yeah. sip your rosé on the, on the, on the lawn and, and feel bad about it, right? <laughs> yeah, and just so you know, folks, a little behind the scenes of what goes on, Tim carries a constitution with him. He's, <laughs> it's I, a he's over there, he's in the green room, and he's looking through the constitution, and I'm like, I don't come as well prepared. Oh, right, so, I'm a nerd. Any thoughts about this? Well, I think that... Um, you know, at the heart of this is going to be whether or not the class action, for lack of a better term, nature of this challenge is what will actually hold up. Or if you'll have person X in Charlestown, their situation, their deed, when, when they brought their property, what, what, is, what were they deeded versus person Y down in, you know, Mesquamacate, is the, it may end up being a case-by-case -case mm. situation. And that will take a very long time. Uh, and may actually yield a, a more clear result. My final thought, you know who's going to really benefit from all this? The lawyers. The lawyers. Of yes. course. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is Rhode Island, right? Yeah, right? All right, I have a couple other things to get to, but let's uh, not short you on outrages and or kudos. Steph, did you bring one or the other this week? Tim's going to go first. Okay. All okay, right, I'm going got? first. Uh, well, my outrage is the summer weather. If I were to grade it uh, <laughs> as, a, as a teacher, I would give it a solid C-, and Mother Nature is going to have to do a lot of work in the second semester of August <laughs> to try and boost that grade. It has been... Uh, it, it's been beach weather and weekdays, and when it is sunny on weekends, it is, uh, you know, socked in by smoke from Canada. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> right. this, uh, my outrage is the weather so far this summer. All so right. well, I already knew that that was Tim's outrage, so I didn't want to steal oh, it, but I wanted to piggyback upon it okay. and say uh, it is Every weekend it rains, and then Monday comes, and it's perfect beach it's weather, so and we all have to go to work. Was there some collusion here on the outrages? You're not full, supposed to. There was full collusion. We text a lot. I'll say that. <laughs> Folks, we should also uh, let you know, we uh, Steph has moved from, <laughs> there's, a, there's kind of a staff meeting going on here with WPRI. <laughs> uh, she is now officially with the Boston Globe, but you also are doing some work for Rhode Island PBS. Yes. So you are here as part of the partnership. Uh, you will be uh, doing some stories for Rhode Island PBS Weekly, which airs, of course, on Sundays and Wednesdays at yes. uh, so excited to so. be here. And I worked with Steph for years at Channel 12. Any insights? Um, uh, oh, um, she's never on time. That's she's going to be late for every meeting, okay. but boy, is she going to break a lot of stories. Yeah, there I you go. You there's always there's always a plus a minus on that. Bill, <laughs> um, a quick outrage this week: syringes washed ashore on East Matunic, garbage washed ashore on East Matunic. Uh, this is disgusting. This is outrageous, and. Um, we're stewards of this planet. This is not the syringe tide of the late 1980s in New Jersey that shut down those beaches, but it is a disgrace. We talk about climate change. This goes way beyond that. Uh, we need to rethink before, unless we're planning on going to Mars or whatever exoplanets out there that we're going to abandon Earth, 
we need to rethink everything right now. There's no urgency. It's become political. This is not a political matter. This is the survival of the species, never mind quality of life in Rhode Island. But um, just a disgusting situation. Medical waste washing ashore on East Matunic. The beach is closed down. Uh, plus, you got the Portuguese man of war, you got sharks, so on and so forth. Okay. And uh, just like that, Senator Josh Miller wrapped up his uh, criminal case this week. We've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's the famous incident at uh, now infamous uh, at Garden City, keyed somebody's car, his story changed to upgraded criminal charges. You covered this. And he offered the mayor a couple, but to me, it's like, okay, this kind of never happened, and the Senate leadership moves on. Yeah, and I had been trying to talk to him ever since it happened, so and he hadn't spoken yet, so I went to his arraignment, which also turned out to be his plea and sentencing. All wrapped um, up in all one. All wrapped up in one, and he did speak to reporters outside, He but he read from a prepared statement, and then he didn't really answer most of the questions that reporters had, which, honestly, like, the most basic one is, why'd you, why'd you do it, right? I mean, I think everyone thinks it was probably because of the anti-Biden bumper sticker that the driver had on the car, but he actually... But was it really? He didn't say yeah. what it was that was the real reason why he keyed the car. He said, you know, basically it was a, a, a moment of a lack of control, um, and he apologized, and uh, he's not planning to resign. He said he would talk to his constituents and fellow senators about that matter, but at this point, um, the Senate president is standing by him. You know what made all the difference in this case? Body-worn cameras. Uh, which are fairly nascent in, uh, for yeah. the Cranston Police Department because yeah. otherwise, if it weren't for the video evidence, um, you might have had a he said, she said. Senator Miller might have denied uh, the narrative that the Cranston Police put forward about what he said to them, but in this case, the tape doesn't lie. And not 30 days of let's review it. Cranston has been right out there with the school committee. Well, member, okay, right? that's fine, but we'll see how Cranston is when there is an incident that uh, with might... With the mayor? Be, I <laughs> said that exact same thing. I said exactly because, because they got the video out one day after it happened because clearly this was a very... What if it's a use of force incident? But that I, correct, I'd like know, to that, see so. if the Cranston police are yes. accused of something. A little premature in my kudos for the they Cranston get it out police. so no, no. fast. They are, no, no, they, kudos. They, they deserve it. They, yes. You're 100% right because they don't have to stick to the statutory time frame that's in our public records law and so they haven't and that's great and that helped thrust this conversation into the public sphere with an elected official so kudos is deserved. Yes. I wonder if, you know, Josh Miller knew what he was doing when this happened on a mental health level because it is just such an unbelievable thing to do. You wonder if there was some kind of adrenaline rush that took over, uh, if, if the atmosphere we live in right now politically did something to him that he was just overtaken with just this completely foolish behavior. Um, or if he just walked up and said, you know what, I'm going to key this guy's car. It could be either way. Uh, we may never know, but I do agree the body cam footage being released also in the Matt Riley situation was, uh, it was prompt and it allowed for immediate lack of speculation and, yeah, and the, just reporting. The, the key in the car is one thing. I see what Bill is saying there, but I think the real outrageous thing was the lying to the police. Right, the, and, and the obstruct, and, that, and, that, the the obstruct, obstruct, and that that's why they added. they added it at his arraignment, which then, as Steph pointed out, turned into a change of But plan. your colleague, Ted Nisi last week pointed out that maybe the reason the Senate leadership is is that Senator Ruggiero, years ago, had a keen incident of his own, and he had another incident that's pretty famous that we Nobody wore cameras for that one. Nobody, man. I wish we'd had it at the CVS back in 1984. Okay. But, but what, the thing to me is, 
how now do you not at least remove him from the leadership? Because when you go in, I mean, what message, I know, don't judge me on my worst day, but now you're going to be at a hearing and you're going to have this guy, and people are going to say, I just think it sends, I think it sends a bad message. I think message. it can be a distraction, and unfortunately, I've covered many, many, many sitting elected officials getting arrested um, in my sh relatively short time in Rhode Island. And it's pretty common that they step down from leadership positions, but not necessarily from their seat, because mm -hmm. that you can right. leave that up to the voters, right, to decide if they want But it's that. in the Senate president's purview often, to make that decision. Yes, often they a might ask the person to step down from leadership because it can be a distraction when that when there's big legislation that they would prefer to be talking about rather than the fact that this is the guy who got arrested. I'm sure the Senate president is just uh, hoping that other things distract everyone b before you know, sure session the, starts again. Right. Matto right. stepped right in and That's helped right. him with that. Okay, folks, that is all the time we have. Bill and Steph and Tim, good to have you back. Uh, stay tuned to his reporting this week. Folks, you never know what's going to happen between now and next week. We hope you will be here with us on a lively experiment as we dissect it next week. Have a great weekend. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.